This morning, I want to talk to you about the trial of the century. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 as we continue to go through the book of Acts. But I want to talk to you about the trial of the century. 1971, you may remember this trial. It was about three years before I was born. But there was a trial that went on, and to to tell you how important and worldwide it was, uh, as a teenager, I knew about this trial. But in 1971, there was a cult that was being prosecuted because they had murdered several people in the Los Angeles area. They were known as the Manson family. You might know their leader, Charles Manson. In fact, they had such scare tactics that while the trial was going on, they were threatening members of their family. In fact, one of the lawyers disappeared, which they later found murdered. There was all kinds of things that went on, theatrics that went on in the courtroom and everything while this trial proceeded on. And eventually in 1971, they found the Manson and his followers to be guilty on all accounts. They designed it for them to then be murdered, be killed because of what they had done through capital punishment. But a year later, California reversed that right and they ended up with a life sentence. Well, maybe you'll remember in 1992, there was a trial of the century that happened during that time as well. I remember it. I was in high school. It was a trial that also happened in Los Angeles. Go figure. A trial that was known as the Rodney King murder Many of you remember he was pulled over by police and then beaten with a baton 56 times until he died there on the streets. How we know this is because it was publicized so. It was recorded. It was put out there on all news outlets. You could see that it was an overextension of justice that was done to this man. Unfortunately, after the trial went on, they decided that he, these officers were not guilty of wrongdoing. And uh, what ended up happening is it ended up causing what we call the 1992 L.A. riots, if you remember that. They did over $1 billion worth of damage in Los Angeles. But eventually those four men were prosecuted federally and two of them ended up serving 30 months in prison for for their part in the death of Rodney King. Or better yet, you might remember one goes a little bit further on. I was in college in 1995. Some of y'all already see you whispering to your spouse. You know what trial I'm talking about. His name was O.J. Simpson. Yes, he was a popular football player, an incredible athlete. But in 1995, he murdered his ex-wife and boyfriend. You say, well, he was acquitted, so how do you know he murdered them? Oh, yeah, he murdered them. (laughs) There was no doubt about it because they chased him from that home. They chased him for 50 miles on a slow rolling car procession throughout the streets of, get this, L.A. All three trials, L.A. And what happens is as he's traveling, they finally arrest him. They pull him over. They have all the evidence even right there in his own Bronco. And yet they still fail. Why? Because O.J. had great lawyers. They were known as the dream team. And, of course, they had kind of set this precedent there that the evidence had been tainted by the officers during that trial. And therefore, because the evidence was tainted and they were discriminatory towards O.J., that's the only reason why they were prosecuting him. And you might remember the most famous piece of evidence was a glove, right? The glove that did not fit, right? And you see why I'm doing that, right? Because that's how he held his hand when he tried to put the glove on it. It's not going to fit that way. But anyways, I remember Johnny Cochran's famous statement, correct? 
If it does not fit, you must acquit. And that was a very popular trial. It was known, and, and it's still known today, this trial of O.J. Simpson, because it was known all over the land. Well, I'm here to tell you, we're going to look at a trial today that was a trial of a century back in biblical times. And it was a trial of two innocent men who had performed a great miracle on a lame man. And they had seen greatness happen that God's glory was being magnified. And yet they were brought in and prosecuted and tried before a court of religious leaders. And as they were brought into this court, there was evidence that was being brought in. But the thing was, is the glory of God was exalted in the midst of it. And they would have to let these two men go. So this morning, I want us to take a look at three scenes in the trial of Peter and John. We'll begin in verses 13 and 14 as we look at the perception of the witnesses. Look at me in verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. What a statement. They looked at these two men and it says they perceived. Now, isn't that funny? We all perceive things about people, don't we? Isn't it funny that I always tell people, don't always take somebody on the first impression. Because sometimes they're not always who they seem to be in first impressions. But these people perceive this about Peter and John. And what did they perceive? That they were uneducated and untrained. What do they mean by uneducated? Well, they weren't trained in the rabbinic schools. Much like Jesus, it was proclaimed, well, this man, he, he wasn't trained like us. He wasn't, he wasn't taught like us. He didn't go through the schools like us. Of course, Peter was, what, a fisherman. And John was a fisherman. So they wouldn't have been trained in rabbinic Law. They wouldn't have been trained in the things of the Bible in the Old Testament. They would not have had that education. And so they looked at him and said, well, they're uneducated. And then they said they're untrained. They don't know our ways. They don't know how to proceed forward. They, they're not like us. These were the rabbis. These were the Pharisees. These were the elite. They're not like us. Can I tell you, that's not always a bad thing to be like everybody else. In fact, the statement is made like this, and I love it. They're uneducated, untrained. They marveled. And they realized they had been with Jesus. You know, I believe in education. I believe in discipleship. I believe that we ought to have classes where we have Sunday school. I think that's important. I think it's important to be trained. But it can never counteract your time alone with Jesus. It can't do it. You need to have a personal, private time that you spend with the Lord in prayer, reading his word. These men had been with Jesus. There was something about them that lit them up, that made them look different, and it was because they were Jesus. I'm here to tell you, some of y'all need to get some time alone with Jesus and then tell your faces you've been with him. I'm telling you, one of the biggest problems we have in the church today is if you think the only time you get fed is in the house of God, you're in a lot of trouble. You're going to starve to death as a Christian. You are going to be a, uh, you're just going to be in a lot of trouble. But look at what it says here. They realize they have been with Jesus. You know, there's several things that Jesus did that really bothered the Pharisees. The first thing is he accepted the reprobates. He accepted the reprobates. I love it. I'm going to talk about this story tonight in the Gospel of Luke. But we find this story where Jesus meets with tax collectors and sinners. And as he meets with these tax collectors and sinners, the Pharisees are like, that's not our group. We don't hang out with those people. No good respecting person would hang out with people like that. And Jesus said, you know what? It's funny. He said, physicians, they heal the sick, not those that are well. You guys have a wrong perception about who you are. And we'll see that tonight. But Jesus 
was willing to hang out with reprobates. Number two, he didn't accept their traditions. In fact, one of the things, traditions he didn't accept was he didn't accept their Sabbath laws. In Matthew chapter 12, there's a man who had a withered hand and came to Jesus with his withered hand. And they all came to him wanting to see what he's going to do. And Jesus looked at him and he said, what? He said, he said is it okay to do good on the Sabbath or to do bad? What, what do you guys think? And he said, he told the man with the withered hand, he said, lift your hand up. And as he lifted it up, it became whole again. He wasn't willing to fit into their traditions and their laws. He did not respond to their baiting. There were several times they tried to bait him. They tried to debate him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16, they said, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something. Show us that you are the Messiah. And he said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. He told them these things. He wouldn't be baited by them. He also passed all their tests. You know they tried to test Jesus numerous times. They came to him in Matthew 19. They wanted to test him about divorce. And Jesus said that was never God's intention. God's intention was one man, one woman for life. It was never God's intention for divorce. But because of you men, because of your hearts, God gave a certificate of divorce. He goes into Matthew chapter 22, and they want to challenge him about taxes. And that's where Jesus said to them, Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render unto God the things that are God. Then the Sadducees came up to him, and they wanted to talk to him about the afterlife, which they didn't even believe in a resurrection. And Jesus said, You're right. We do serve a God of the resurrection. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not dead. He's the God of the living and then he also took care of the guy who came to him and wanted to know what the first and greatest commandment was. And he said, well, the first and greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and all your mind. He put every last one of them in their place as they come to test him. But not only that, he posed questions that they couldn't answer. There was a time where they came to him and said, where does your power come from? And he said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, I'll answer your question if you'll answer my question. He said, where did John the Baptist's power come from? Where did he get his power? What, what do you think about that? And they said, they started debating among themselves. They said, well, if we say that his power came from God, he's going to ask us why we didn't listen to him. If we say that his power came from man, then the crowds will turn on us and not listen to us anymore. He had got them in a corner and they said, you know what? We can't answer that question. And Jesus said, then I'm not going to answer yours. Jesus trapped them several times like that because he was wiser than they were. And one of the biggest things that really got him into trouble was he talked about their hypocrisy. You read Matthew chapter 23, there has never been such a resounding resentment towards a group of people that were so religious elite but yet had no character and love for the things of God. Jesus laid it on the line with him. And here these disciples were much like him. You want to know why? Because Peter accepted the reprobates when he touched the lame man. When he took him and he healed him, he accepted one that they walked past day after day, week after week, month after month, and wanted nothing to do with him. But Peter was one who, by the name of Jesus Christ, healed this man. He didn't accept their traditions. He preached about Jesus and the resurrection, which is what got him in trouble and why he was on trial, because he preached about the one that they did not believe in. Not only that, but he passed all their tests when they asked him, what power and what name are you preaching this in? And he told them, I preach it in the name of Jesus. And then I love it because he also talked about their hypocrisy because he said, I'm preaching about the one you crucified. Man, when they saw the way Peter was, when they saw the way Peter stood trial, when they saw the way that Peter wouldn't back down, they said, you know what? We know there's something different about this guy. He's uneducated, he's untrained, but he's been with Jesus. Let me tell you something. People need to know you've been with Jesus. 
They need to see something different in you. They need to know that there's something in your life that makes you stand out. And it's not you, it's who's in you. It's the one that fills you, it's the one who uses you, it's the one who's called you, and it's the one who's not through with you because he's still working on you. They need to know these things about you. Jesus will change your life just as he did Peter and John's. I want somebody to look at me and say, you know what, that's a Jesus freak. You better believe I'm a Jesus freak. I'll do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. I just got to get my Myself out of the way. It's all for him and none for me. And that's the way we as Christians need to be. Uneducated, untrained, but they've been with Jesus. And verse 14 says, And seeing the man who had been healed standing with him, they could say nothing against it. I mean, could you imagine? Here's Peter and John, and here's this guy. We don't know if he was arrested. We don't know. We're not certain if he was arrested along with him. But if he wasn't arrested along with him, it amazes me that he pops up at the trial because he's not done. Because he's not through pointing the way. He's been healed. He's been changed. He's been saved. And he's like, you know what? I'm not done with this yet. They either arrested him along with Peter and John because he said, you know what? I'm going with them because I'm the one they healed. Or he showed up the very next day as soon as the Sanhedrin was called together. He said, I'm going to speak for these men because of what's happened in my life. I am living proof that God is real. Let me tell you something. You ought to be living proof that God is real. You ought to be living proof that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. You ought to be the evidence that when people see you, they know this book is true. Are you the evidence? Well, they perceived the witnesses. Number two, we see the deliberation of the Sanhedrin. Look at me in verse 15. It says, but when they had commanded them to go outside, out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it, so that it spreads no further among the people. Let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. They had to confer with one another. Don't you love that when you talk with somebody and they want you to step aside because they got to talk to some other people after you? They've got to deliberate. They've got to get a little bit of understanding. They've got, to, they've got to sense what's going on. So they asked the disciples to step out. And the 71 men decide it's time to meet and let's talk about it. And verse 16 tells us, what shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done. We cannot deny the evidence. The evidence is so clear. There's no way to deny it. You want to know why? Because you need to understand something. The miracle was done spontaneously. You say, what do you mean spontaneously? It was not planned. It wasn't planned. They were going to the temple. They were merely walking by. This beggar sitting at the temple looks up at them and asks for alms. And Peter and John, in a moment of spontaneity, in a moment of the Holy Spirit's desire for them to heal this man, in a moment of a divine appointment by God and God alone, spontaneously looked down at him and said, Silver and gold have we none, but in the name of Jesus Christ, get up and walk. Spontaneously. Let me tell you something. God will give you divine appointments if you open up your calendar and say, God, have what you will. Do what you want. God will give you those divine appointments. We're going to see it all throughout the book of Acts. Divine appointments that God sets up, that God designs, that God puts in the way. And this point was a divine appointment by God to where he was going to grow the church because these men were readily available and willing to be spontaneous when God presented the opportunity. 
The door was open. All they had to do was walk through. But it not only happened spontaneously, it happened openly. They did it in front of everybody. They didn't have to do it behind closed doors. They did it right there in front of everybody. Everybody could see. And they say this, all of Jerusalem's heard about it. Let me tell you something. When something big like that happens, word spreads. I have found that word spreads about two things. It spreads something that can only be considered miraculous and divine. And then it loves to spread gossip and bad things. You ever notice that? Bad news will carry faster than anything in this world. Except for the miraculous. Except for something that can only be considered divine. Except for something where only God is at work and you know it was God and God alone. That will move openly and quickly. This man was 40 years old that had been healed. There's no telling how many years he was laid up at the temple. At 40 years old, his parents probably were done with him by 20, if not 30 years old. So for 10 to 20 years, his friends had to carry him outside the temple where he could beg for alms, pick him back up at the end of the day, carry him home, and sit him down. For 40 years, this was done, or for 20 years at least, this was done. And we know that God did this openly. And not only that, he did it immediately. Because right after Peter said, get up and walk, he reaches down to pull the man up. And strength comes into his legs, and he not only gets up, but he leaps up. And he goes leaping through the temple. I wonder how many of us would be excited if somebody started leaping in church. I I think if that happened in a Baptist church, you would think you were in a Pentecostal church, wouldn't you? I remember watching one time a video of a man who was up there singing, and the church was just going crazy. They were hooping and hollering. People were running around the church. One guy got so excited, I don't know what happened, but he ran all the way up to the front and jumped in the baptistry with all the water in it. And he still got up hooping and hollering. But I'm going to tell you, this man was so excited. And the reason why he was excited was he wanted to bring glory to God for what had happened. He wasn't trying to bring attention to himself like many people do in church. He wasn't trying to draw the attention to himself. After his miracle happened and his leaping was going on and his praising was happening, he was pointing them to Peter and John, basically saying, listen to these guys. They have a message for you. And Peter and John never pointed themselves. They didn't say, we did this. But it came through the power in the name of Jesus Christ. They always pointed it to Jesus. We know something has happened. We can't deny it. But verse 17 But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Why would they come to that conclusion? Well, first off, they believed that they were teaching something different than what they had always been taught. The Pharisees didn't like change. Do you know anybody that doesn't like change? Have you been in church long? Church doesn't like change. But these men did not like change. The message was different. It really wasn't different. It was a true explanation of the Old Testament. It was a further understanding of the mysteries of God, as Paul would call them. They were only pointing forward to Jesus Christ. The whole Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, and now he had been there. So instead of saying, he's coming, they said, he's already been. But it was different. They also believed it would take away from their influence. Why? Because they weren't the first ones to proclaim it. 
Now you got fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, all these other people proclaiming a different message than what they believed. They were the ones that turned from it. They were the ones that crucified it. They were the ones that tried to do away with it. They were the ones that wanted to stop it. And so it was different, and they didn't want to lose their influence. But I also believe they wanted to get rid of it because they had rejected it themselves and believed because they had rejected it, everybody else should reject it. Can I tell you something? Just because you reject something by your own conscience doesn't mean everybody else has to. That's important for you to understand. If you read the whole Bible, you'll sense that. There are certain things that we may have convictions about that other Christians don't have convictions about. The Holy Spirit can do that. Read the book. And in this case, these men didn't want them to believe it because they didn't believe it and they didn't want to lose their influence. But let's look lastly at the verdict by the Sanhedrin and the response by Peter and John. Look at verse 18. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I want you to understand something. The Bible makes it very clear that we are to follow the authorities of the land. Makes it clear. Romans 13, we are to follow the authorities of the land. The Bible teaches that very clearly. Not only in Romans chapter 13, we also see it in 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 13 and 14. We're called to, in fact, we're called in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 and 2 to pray for the leaders of this land and to live in all submission unto them. We are called to be civilly obedient to the laws of the land unless they go against God's laws. Unless they try to supersede the one that we follow. There were several times in Scripture where civil disobedience occurred. You can go all the way back to Exodus chapter 1 where the midwives were told to kill all the baby boys. And the Egyptian midwives would not kill them. They wouldn't follow Pharaoh's law. And God blessed them because of it. You go to Joshua chapter 2 where Rahab disobeyed the laws of the land when she wouldn't turn the spies of the people of Israel over to them. But Rahab did what? She hid them, she protected them, and then she wanted their protection when they came back into the land. And God spared her. And guess what? She's in the line of Jesus Christ. God used her greatly. There's Obadiah during the time of 1 Kings chapter 18, who when Jezebel was trying to kill all the prophets, he hid 50 to a cave and he fed them with bread and water. Obadiah protected the prophets of God. Let's not forget Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were supposed to bow the knee to King Nebuchadnezzar. And when they were threatened to be thrown into fire, they said, O king, you can throw us in the fire. We will not bow down. Even if God doesn't rescue us, we still will not bow down. They were thrown in the fire. And of course, we find there was fourth in the fire with them. We also think about Daniel when Daniel was told to stop praying to God, that he could only pray to the king in Daniel chapter 6. And Daniel continued to pray anyways, as was his tradition. He went up into his upper room and he prayed three times a day, opened up the window, prayed out, crying out to God. He was eventually thrown into the lion's den. And here we find Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin, telling them, is it better for us to obey God or man? You be the judge. Now, it's interesting because these would be the religious leaders. You would expect them to say, you need to follow God, not man. But they believe themselves to be God. That was the problem. 
They believed that they were the religious elite and had a right to shut this down. But the Bible says Peter and John would not be shut down. You need to understand a couple of things. Civil disobedience is allowed when it violates God's word. When it violates the things of God, you must, as a Christian, stand up to the laws that usurp up the authority of God. Number two, civil disobedience is allowed when evil is compelled or commanded. But you also need to understand this. Civil disobedience can lead to punishment. It can lead to going to jail, as Peter and John would find out. When you are civilly disobedient, you can expect the laws of the land to hunker down on you. And you may say, well, I'm doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, so did Peter and John. So did Paul. So did many others in the Bible who ended up in prison because of what they believed. Here's the truth. Do you really believe it if you never suffer for it? Do you really believe it until your feet are put to the fire? Peter and John were arrested. They weren't disrespectful. They weren't ugly, but they were truthful. They were honest. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. They declared the truth. In fact, they right there proclaimed the gospel to these men. Rather, is it better to obey God or man? You make the decision. The answer is very simple. God is our foremost authority. God is our ultimate leader. God is the one we hold ourselves accountable to. It will be God that we will stand before and be judged one day, not man. The Bible makes it clear. Jesus said, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. Don't be fearful of man's judgment. Be fearful of God's. But verse 21, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorify God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. It's amazing. They had to let him go. They were free. Now, here's the thing. They would end up right back in jail a little bit later because they would not stop talking about Jesus. It amazes me today what causes us to stop talking about Jesus. Fear of losing friends or family. Fear of losing a job. Fear of saying the wrong thing. Fear just dominates everything to keep us from telling others about the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John wouldn't let prison keep them from telling others about Jesus. Paul, while in prison, shared the gospel with the guards. we got to understand that just because we proclaim the name of Jesus, it's time we put our money where our mouth is. It's time we start putting it into actual practice. It's time we're willing to stand up for the cause of Christ. And I'm here to tell you, we live in a wicked generation. We are in a very wicked time. We are in a time where things are are being done that are unheard of. Where sin is celebrated. Where it's magnified. Where it's shoved in your face and expected for you to accept it. They want you to coexist. But what that means, they want you to accept their ways and stop believing your ways. You see, we've got to be willing to preach the truth, teach the truth, and stand on the Word of God because it has not changed, it will not change, and it never is going to be any different. We must stand on the truth. And if it means we go to prison for what we believe, then praise God. Let us be like Peter and John, praising the Lord that we're able to suffer like our Lord. 
I'll tell you, many of us would be whining in prison, wouldn't we? We'd have our ten cups raking the bars, singing, nobody knows the troubles I go through. Nobody knows my sorrows. The Bible tells us, according to 2 Peter 3 and verse 12, if you're going to live a godly life, expect persecution. If you're going to live a godly life, expect persecution. I'm afraid in America today, we have lost that. It is easy to be a Christian in America. We're not persecuted for what we believe. We're not devalued for what we believe. We may not be listened to, but we are not persecuted. Not what I consider true, genuine persecution the Bible talks about. I think it's led to a weak Christianity today. I think it's led to us as Christians forgetting what God has truly called us to. Because to be honest with you, we've gotten to a point where we don't even follow the words of Jesus, which is to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Are you really following him? Are you willing to be persecuted for him? Will you stand on the truth? It is time that we start making some noise for the cause of Jesus Christ. If it truly is the end of times, as many are proclaiming it to be, then we better be more about the Father's business today than we were yesterday. We have a gospel, we have the good news, and we better proclaim it.